You are listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more content and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. So today we are continuing with our impromptu sermon series on Mark chapter 10. This is the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And so week one, we talked about Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him basically, look, you say you've done all these commandments, you've, you've checked all the boxes, you've followed all the rules, yet one thing do you lack? Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, because then you will have treasures in heaven. And the young man walks away sad because this is the one thing he can't do. The one thing required of him is empty hands. Spiritual poverty is what is required before Jesus, and yet that is the one thing that he cannot give to Jesus. And then last week, Jesus spoke to his disciples He turns away from the rich young ruler and speaks to them, and he tells them, look, it is easier for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's basically saying, look, all of these the danger of money and riches isn't that it's dangerous in and of itself, but it's dangerous because it draws our hearts toward it. So the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money in and of itself, but the love of money, and our hearts are drawn toward riches. And today, what we're going to talk about is the call of discipleship and how high of a call this is and ultimately what the cost of discipleship should be. Where is my Bible? Here it is. Oh, my goodness. What else? What else could go wrong? Stay tuned. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. This is Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 28. It goes like this. Then Peter spoke up, and speaking to Jesus. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the way that you speak. Thank you that you are not a silent God. We don't have to worry or wonder about if or when you will speak. But whenever your word is is cracked open, God, it is living and active, and it pierces us, dividing joints and marrow. Please do that, Heavenly Father, today. Send your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, because without you, we cannot understand. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. <laughs> uh, so social media, right? 
resounding start to the sermon. Okay, let's see here. Let's back up when we haven't even started. Social media, okay? There are these people called influencers. It's become a thing where you can actually make a living by being a social media influencer. All that you have to do is post a video. Well, not all that you have to do. It's actually really difficult for it to catch on, but you post a video of yourself maybe endorsing a particular product or you become the expert in any number of things, whether it's hunting, guys who, who sell all the hunting gear and can point you in the right direction for that, or whether it's uh, dieting or, or food or any, any number of areas of life, you'll find these gurus, these people that are called influencers, right? And these are people that we can click the follow button and we follow them. Now, I'm not huge on this. Uh, I recently came into the 21st century and I signed up for TikTok the other day. And I don't follow a lot of people on there, but there's one that I do follow religiously. And it's not a person. It's Penny the Cat. Okay? Now, before you, well, you can laugh. I'll give it to you. Uh, so Penny the Cat is uh, just this cat. It's the most ridiculous thing. It's, it's this woman who records herself having these conversations with her cat. And what she does is she dubs over the voice of the cat with her own little girl. And so it's as if the girl is, is responding to her. And so she's, you know, she's, she's asking about, they're having conversations about, you know, really deep things like uh, ham and uh, why she won't get more ham. And uh, can Penny come with her to get the ham at the grocery store? So uh, very deep, very profound kinds of things, right? So Marigold and I, every once in a while, she took him over to me and she'd be like, can we watch Penny the Cat? So she likes watching the, the Penny the Cat videos. Now, the thing about influencers and the thing about followers is that every single one of us is a follower of someone or something. Every single one of us is influenced by someone, some ideal, some political party, some guru or self-help person in some way, shape, or form. And this is the person that we would say that we follow. Now, the New Testament actually has a specific word for this. Someone who follows after. It's a disciple. That's all that the word disciple means. We use it a lot of times to kind of separate these top-tier Christians from you know the rest of us lowly folk. Maybe just there are some people who kind of only believe, and then there are the real disciples you know, the real hardcore followers out there. Well, the reality is that the New Testament makes no such distinction. Judas is a disciple. Uh, Matthew is a disciple. Paul is considered an, an apostle. And so it has nothing to do in particular with your sanctification or how good, if you're a, if you're a black belt Christian or something like that, to be a follower is just someone who follows after Jesus. To be a disciple is to be one who walks in his footsteps. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about discipleship. And we are going to talk about the cost of discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually wrote a book by this very name, The Cost of Discipleship. And here's what he says in that book, probably the most famous line. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There is a cost to discipleship. And it is very high. But as we are going to discover, as we get into this, we are going to find out that the benefits of being a disciple far outweigh the costs. 
So there's a cost in terms of being a disciple of Jesus. There is a cost in terms of relationships. We notice in our text here that Jesus, when he's, he's speaking, he's saying to Peter, look, there is going to be a cost. You are going to have to leave father and mother and children and, and family, really. So the cost is primarily, if you count up the terms that are here, the, the cost is, is primarily in terms of relationship. Actually, those who are very closest to us. There's going to be relational fallout from being a disciple of Jesus. This is the very first thing, a cost in terms of relationship. Earlier this week, I was speaking to a missionary of Africa, ministers to Muslim people groups, and he was telling me about a particular convert to Christianity. He said, this guy... He knew the Quran through and through. I think he'd read it seven different times or something. And eventually he came to see the light. He came to believe in Jesus Christ. And he came to trust in him for his salvation. And so he wanted to be baptized. But you have to understand the way that that works in those particular tribes and cultures is that if you... Uh, deviate from the Muslim culture, there will be consequences, very drastic consequences. So he had to be baptized in secret, in fact. He, didn't, he couldn't allow anyone else to see, anyone else to know. Um, there was a cost to this. In fact, one of his, in Muslim culture, they take many wives, and he had, he had the loss of a wife who, who left him, who just took off when he became a Christian. Um, and it was also the case that he had threats against his life, and it was hard for him to find a job, even to hold down a job afterwards, because your economic means are threatened when you convert to Christianity. So for him, the cost was very, very real. Now, for those of us here in, in America, we might say, yeah, but like, that's, there's not a real danger that I face on a day-to-day -day basis, Right? We have a lot more freedom here, and so, you know, these kind of drastic relational consequences that splits up families and, and things like that, you're right, it's not the same. But there is still a sense in which we as Christians, probably many of you have experienced ostracism in some way, shape, or form, the sense that you are different, the sense that you are other, the sense that you are not a part of kind of the rest of the world. And, and actually affirms this. Now, we need to be very careful about calling ourselves persecuted here in the United States. We need to be very careful about using that term. We can say things like we have been pushed to the fringes. We can say that Christianity no longer maintains the position of power and privilege and position and influence in the world that it once did. It's no longer as Christian in society as it once was. That is absolutely true. But to call that persecution is to kind of belittle, you know, the, the, the people who are in countries and actually experiencing things like death and having to hide in order to even just survive. So we need to be careful about that. But at the same time, there is a cost. There's a very high relational cost because what Jesus is, is doing is he's reordering the hierarchy. He's, he's reordering our value set. And he's saying, look, these, these blood ties that you say are so thick, right? Family is, is kind of everything. These blood, blood, blood is thicker than water. You've heard this, this saying, well, Jesus is saying, look, your ties to your heavenly family are way thicker than your ties to your earthly family. And so in that order, in that ordering of your life as a Christian, 
the kingdom of God and the ties to that are what comes first. So that's the, the relational cost. Now, there's also just a cost in terms of stuff. We like our stuff. We really like our stuff. We can go to the next one, Stan. Um, whether it's getting new stuff, searching for stuff, spending hours on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or eBay or whatever your, your online shopping poison is. Um, we love our stuff. Now, it's gotten, for myself, it's, it's gotten to the point where I've got, I've got one of these things. I've got an, an iPhone. But the thing is, this only has one camera. Shed a few tears for me, please, right? Because I see all these other people around there, and I, oh, they have three cameras on their phone. I only have one. Oh, it's, okay, one, somebody has four cameras on their phone. Your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, my friend. But it, it just adds and adds and adds. And when we get one thing, it's like, okay, well, the next big thing is out there. And no matter what, we are never satisfied. It, it never brings us the, the, the satisfaction, the, the happiness that we're, we're going after that we think it will. And this, this craving for stuff is kind of never-ending. I'm going to read you a quote from a guy named George Frederick Parsons. Here's what he says. The aim and intent of the whole social system of today is to facilitate the acquisition of material wealth. This is the Norman Society. He wrote that in 1887. Before the internet. Before malls. Before any of that sort of thing. Can you imagine what he would say today? This is an accurate description of the world that we find ourselves living in. There's a, another missionary to, to Africa, Don Ron. Is that the name? I'm saying it right. Don Ron. Yes, he has connections to this church, actually. And I remember him speaking one time, and I remember this story in particular. He would, this is a guy who had spent years and years and, and a huge, probably most of his life in Africa, in third world countries, in very difficult situations, experiencing like spiritual warfare stuff firsthand. But he was talking about when he went to visit the Mall of America. And he says, I walked through those doors of the Mall of America. I felt more spiritual warfare there than I had like in anywhere else, any time in my entire life. Right? And he's talking about the power of, of materialism. He's talking about how these places, whether they're physical or virtual, become temples. Become temples of worship, where we spend our time, where we give all of our energy and our, our resources because we really love our stuff. In fact, Jesus warns us about the dangers of this in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. It goes like this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's kind of like this. Imagine that your heart is a train engine. And as you're going through life, 
more cars and more cars and more cars get attached to this, right? All of our, our stuff, and, and we accumulate all of these things. And whether that is physically or just spiritually in our own hearts, that is what happens. That is our tendency. That is our desire. And so the challenge, the call of Jesus here is to, to uncouple those cars from the engine. Because that is the stuff that is vying for our allegiance to him. Wealth, stuff, vies for our allegiance to Jesus. So we have a cost in terms of relationship. We have a cost in terms of stuff. We also have a cost in terms of blood. You can go to the next one, Stan. So in 1956... Life magazine ran an article about five missionaries who were killed in the field. This whole thing was called Operation Alka. And these gentlemen who brought their, some of them brought their families over to Ecuador, which is where this, this happened. And um, they were trying to establish contact with a group that had not been met before, the Warani people. And it was an Indian tribe. And this tribe was known for being particularly dangerous and very violent. And, but they wanted to bring the gospel to them because they hadn't heard it before. And so what they did was they took things very cautiously, knowing this, at least right off the bat. And they had a, 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 one of them was a pilot. Nate Saint was the name. And he, what he did at first was he just flew around his plane, flew near their, their encampments, and he dropped gifts down to them. And they actually reciprocated by dropping, by returning their own gifts back up. So it seemed like things were progressing. It seemed like things were going well. They thought, okay, let's take the next step. Let's try to establish contact with them. So they landed the plane on a sandbar that's a couple of miles from, from their village. And a few of the Warani people, they came forward. They came, toward, they came toward them cautiously at first, but they made contact and things seemed to be going well. In fact, they took one of them up for an airplane ride because they'd never been in an airplane before. So it seemed to, seemed to be on the right track. But it didn't take long before misunderstandings arose. Cultural differences and language challenges made it appear that they had, the Americans had said something or had done something that they, in fact, hadn't intended to. And so as those, those first set of visitors left, a new party, a new band, group of Warriors showed up at the plane with spears in hand and killed all five of the missionaries. These are young men in the prime of their life, giving everything. They're literally their blood for the sake of the gospel. James Edwards has said, you can go to the next slide, Stan. James Edwards has said, Jesus will have all of you, or he will not have you at all. You see, what is required of us, what is demanded of us, is all, is everything. Now, again, we can kind of make the argument, well, yeah, but we're here in America. This isn't a third world country. We don't, you know, I generally, when I go out and read my Bible somewhere, I don't have to worry about being shot with a crossbow or something. And good. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. But what we need to understand about 
this cost of, of blood. It's in the Old Testament, tells us in Leviticus that uh, the life of the creature resides in the blood. And so what blood is, blood is the, the equivalent of the source of life, of the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. And so to say that blood is demanded, is required of us, is simply another way of saying that our lives are going to be required of us. In all likelihood, for those of us here, not in a physical way like the missionaries here being required to lay it down, but at the same time, it's going to be an incredible cost, and it's going to be in demand absolutely everything from us. But I want to read to you something else here. I want to read Matthew 16, verse 25. And this is where we begin to make the demand from the, co- the transition from the demands of discipleship, the, the cost of discipleship, to the benefits of discipleship. Matthew 16:25 says, "For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it." Jesus speaking to his disciples. Whoever desires to get everything out of this life that we can. And to have your best life now will actually lose it. But those of us who lose our lives will find life, will find abundant life, life as it was always meant to be. So what that means for us is that the benefits of being a disciple of Jesus Christ far outweigh the cost. If you put them on a a scale, it's like putting a grain of sand on one side and a, a boulder on the other. Not even close. Doesn't even begin to compare. So there's this thing called a, a benefit-cost calculation ratio. Anybody familiar with this term, benefit-cost? Basically what it is, is it's a way of quantifying whether something is worth doing in terms of the amount of money you're going to invest in it. So like, is this project, this thing I'm thinking of, possibly doing, are the benefits going to be sufficiently high to justify the cost that we're going to have to pour into it? So, for example, I was an engineer for four years before I became a pastor, and I was working on a highway at one point, and we were trying to determine whether or not to put in a guardrail along this stretch of road. And so as we we did that, we took a number of factors into account. We accounted for what is the average daily traffic of this road. You know, is it sufficiently high to justify that cost. What is the design speed of the road? Is it just a 30 mile per hour road where somebody's not likely to go over? Uh, what is the, the slope of the ditch? Is it dangerous enough? Is it steep enough where somebody's going to flip? Or is this flat enough where when somebody goes off, they can kind of keep driving? So we would take all these factors into account. You would calculate the benefits, the potential benefits of it, and you would also calculate the cost, right? The construction cost of, <clears throat> excuse me, of putting in guardrail. And so if that was at a particular ratio, if it hit a certain threshold, then you were allowed to, to build it. And in fact, this particular guardrail, we did, we did build it. The benefits far outweigh the cost. And as disciples of Jesus, he tells us right here in this passage for this morning, he tells us exactly what that ratio is. Listen to this. Mark 10, 29 through 30, again, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father 
or children or field for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times. A hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. A hundred times, which is just another way of saying infinitely many, infinitely more than what is, is given up. So it's kind of, kind of like this. Halloween is coming up, so let's talk candy bars. Which, what's the best one? What's your favorite candy bar? What are we doing here? Reese's, correct answer. Okay. So, it's like this. Imagine I go up to you and I offer you a fun-sized Reese's Pieces. Okay, one of those little ones. And I say, you can have this and you can eat it now. Or, you can wait until the end of the day and I'll give you a five-gallon bucket full of full-size, they're not this big, full-size Reese's Pieces. You see, the cost of waiting, of having to delay gratification, is far outweighed by the benefits of receiving this gift, right? There's no, no comparison there. And that's exactly what, what Jesus is driving at in our text this morning. And, you know, the interesting thing he, he says here is he doesn't just say, look, you're going to get, you're going to receive this hundredfold more in the next life, in eternity. He actually says now, here and now in this life, you will receive brothers and fathers and, and children. So it's not as if we have to wait until we're dead to receive these benefits. He's saying, no, look, what you lose, these blood ties, these relationships that get marred and severed and broken for the sake of the gospel. He says, look in the pew next to you. Look what I've given to you. You have this entire family of spiritual mentors. Children that you can share the good news of the gospel with. Brothers and sisters in Christ to, to go with you along this way so that you are not alone on the road to discipleship. We've all had people that probably come to mind when, when we think of, of that. And oftentimes, the interesting thing is that when we find these people, they're not always in the places we expect. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip to Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana. This was known as the bloodiest prison in America for a number of years. There were riots and prison, prisoners killed one another. It was really bad. Uh, a new warden came in who was a Christian. And at that point, it was amazing the work that God did. He raised up churches within the the prison system, and you have all of these different churches going on and occurring there. Um, but what, one of the most powerful parts of that entire trip was when I had a chance to visit death row. I got to walk into this, this room full of all these prisoners who had been sentenced to life in, in prison for the crimes they had committed. And they got... They were just, this was a holding cell basically until, you know, the death penalty would come and, and finish them off essentially. And so as, as we were walking around there, these guys, I, I could tell like they were in, in pretty dire straits. I mean, this is a, a rough position to be in. They got out of jail maybe uh, one hour a day, I think is what I said. Or maybe it was one hour a week. It was, it was very little. 
But what I, I discovered is that I, I was walking through there and, and I saw one of, one of these, these gentlemen in his, in his cell. And we didn't really have an agenda when we were there. We were just supposed to meet with them and pray with them. And so I, I reached my hand through that cell and I remember this, this strong black hand coming through and, and grasping hold of mine and praying for me. <laughs> just praying for me. And I met one of the strongest Christians that I had ever met in my life. You know, you go there thinking you were going to bless others. They end up blessing you on death row. <laughs> it's crazy the way that God operates. But again, the ultimate reward, the ultimate benefit of being a disciple is going to be in eternity. This is the good life as it's always imagined. So many of, of us, so many people in our world today say, we're going after the good life. I'm searching for the good life and I'm going to get there and I'm going to arrive at there. But the thing is, once we arrive at there, it doesn't begin to even hold a candle to how God describes the good life in eternity. So I'm going to read to you from Revelation where we get a glimpse of this. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 7. This is... John, and he's describing a vision he is having of the new heavens and the new earth. And, and this is the hope of every believer in Jesus Christ. This is just a brief glimpse, a glimmer of what that will be like. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So here's the main takeaway for this morning. The cost is temporary. The benefits are eternal. The cost of being a disciple is temporary. The benefits are eternal, and they far outweigh the cost. So whatever we lose, Jesus Christ will restore a hundredfold and then some. The cost of discipleship is high. In fact, it's so high that it cost God His one and only Son. It cost Jesus every last drop of His blood. But the benefits to us are enormous. Peace, forgiveness, security, eternal life. So may we leave here today rejoicing in Jesus, the only truly faithful disciple to ever walk this earth and who never hesitated to pay the ultimate price for you and for me. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. 
If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J O L H A U G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.